So Christmas is finally upon us, and I was, I, I was watching TV, which is a very abnormal thing for me to do, but I was watching TV a couple of days ago, and I saw an HSBC commercial. And the HSBC commercial says it's, it's time to, to celebrate. It's, you know, calling all the fa-la-la-lars and the, you know, that, that commercial that, you know, everybody's like trying to make everybody excited. And I, I was also up at Blue Mountain while I was watching this commercial. And it was this strange moment for me because, yes, at Blue Mountain, everything is Christmas right now. Everything is Christmas. I mean, there, is, there are lights everywhere. There's Christmas music playing all the time. There's a, Chris, there's a store dedicated to Christmas. And then there's this HSBC commercial where everything is all ramping up to this Christmas season, which is just beautiful and totally love it. But what was obviously absent from this setting was the genuine reason why celebration is even something that's attainable right now. I mean, it's like the marketers in the world think that what we do is we just flip a switch and we say, well, we'll move on from whatever restrictions are on us and we'll just move on from all of the concerns that we have and the fear that's been building in culture for so long. We'll just move on from it and we'll just turn on celebration switch just because it's a choice. Just because we can, just because if we distract everybody long enough and loud enough, then maybe people will believe that there's something worth celebrating, and it lacked substance. It was so unbelievable to me that I walked into this Christmas store, and there was not one, not one icon, relic, mention, image, ornament, nothing of the person of Jesus. I searched high and low all over looking for some evidence that God had come to give us reason to celebrate and it was lacking in the cultural message. And I don't say that to bemoan culture. I don't say that to put them down. I just say that, that the Christian message is what gives us substance and reason to hope. That God has actually done something with this mess. That God is actually doing something with this mess. And we are being brought along by God's action. And that is substance. That is foundational enough that I can, in the midst of hard times, find reason to celebrate. That I can, in the midst of challenge, in the midst of ongoing sacrifice and struggle, we find reason to celebrate because God is not done working and he shows us in the person of Jesus. And so that is what we're basing this entire series on. We're basing this entire series on the idea that God has done something. Now, where do we get that from? Well, we get it from the book of Matthew. We get it from the book of Matthew because Matthew starts off his book telling us that God has indeed done something. Books today are, are written with a hook. And, and actually many things are written with a, a hook. There's something that you want to put right at the beginning, right in the first five seconds of a, of a TV show or a YouTube clip, right at the beginning of a message like a great introduction, um, right at the beginning of of a book, like a, a piece of intrigue that hooks you in and makes you commit 
to the book. That's the way that we do this. And so, so when we write, we write with intrigue, which is why oftentimes if you open up a novel, it starts off and you're in this setting that you don't really know enough about, but something is going on and you want to know more. I'm not sure if you've read the Gospel of Matthew, but Matthew didn't start with that format. Um, he started with a different priority, and he wanted to show us something very different, and we're going to read uh, Matthew 1, 1 to 17 in just a moment. He wanted to show us that God is actually doing something. In the first century, books were often written um, about poignant people. There were biographies written about important people. And these biographies always started with a birth narrative. They started to tell you why that person that you're going to read about is worth reading about. Why is it that Caesar is ruler? Well, we see that in his birth narratives that were written about him, that he was a divine son of God. And you should listen to him because look at the miraculous way that he was born. Well, Matthew knows that, and the whole first century Jewish world knows that. And so, starting with a birth narrative is actually the way you introduce your main character. You talk about the divine intervention that the main character faces and that the main character represents. And so, this is the format that was used. Well, except for by Matthew, he didn't actually do that. He even chose a different format. He actually went further back. There's another rule in literature, and I was talking to an author uh, last week about this topic, and, uh, and here's the rule in literature. If you're going to write a prophecy, you need to write the prophecy after you're done writing the plot. That way you know the prophecy is actually going to happen. It's predictive, but to the reader, but to the author, it's specific. It's something that is placed after the whole thing has happened that they can reflect back and they can say, oh, look, this is going to happen. And they can foreshadow or they can tell you what's going to happen. And so you write the prophecy later. Unless you're God. Then you already know these things and you can actually speak of real prophecies. Matthew is astute enough along with all the people in his culture, to recognize that God has made prophetic statements about what will happen to Israel. Matthew understands his history well enough to know that it isn't just the divine birth narrative that happens that tells you that something is important, but in the Bible's case, in the story of Jesus, we're talking about 1,500 years before prophecy started to come out about this moment at this time. See, God broke all those rules, and he actually started talking 1,500 years before. He broke the rules about how to write prophecy that, you know, it's, it's written, and I'm going to get back to that in a minute, but 1,500 years before. See, in our culture, nobody likes genealogies. How many people, when you're reading the Bible, you get, if, if you're reading the Bible, but when you're reading the Bible, let's, let's go with that. When you're reading your Bible, you get to a genealogy and you realize that the scrabble that represents letters, because they're other language names, is really challenging to actually read. And so sometimes you might just do this. Let's get to the story. Anybody ever done that? 
Yeah, 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 yeah. Just a few of us. We've done that. So today's text is actually a block of genealogy. I was dyslexic. So it's going to be challenging, but there is purpose for this, and we cannot just breeze over the genealogy because we have to understand why did Matthew put this here, and why does it matter, and why does it give me a basis to celebrate when there is not really a lot of good basis to celebrate today. Let's start with Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob. Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amibinadad. Amimbadad, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz, and Rahab, or Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. Pause. And David was the father of Solomon, by the wife of by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Jeroam, and Jeroam, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shetail, and Shetail was the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel was the father of Abudid. Mm, that one's hard. And Abud, the father of Elkeim, and Elkeim, the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Zodiac, and Zodiac, the father of Achim, and Achim, the father of Elud, and Elud, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Mathan, and Mathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, who is the husband of Mary, whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. Wow. Now, what do you get from all that? I mean, how do you apply that to your life? This is a passage of Scripture, and when they teach you in preaching, in homiletics class, they say, you study Scripture until you dive into it so deep that the Holy Spirit gives you something that you embody, and you speak to the congregation because God is always speaking through His Word. And there were words in this text. And you look at that and you say, but God, what are you even saying here? What are you saying here when you're talking about these people? You know, what is the point? 17 verses of genealogy. See, in this, Matthew is identifying Jesus as the Messiah, Christ, before Jesus had done anything in the story. Before Jesus had even been born, Matthew is drawing the attention of the reader to the fact that the main character of this story is the Messiah, the Christ, the hope 
of all Israel. He does this in two ways. He tracks Jesus' lineage through Joseph all the way back to Abram. Why? Because in Genesis 12, Abram is the beginning of the promise of God's redemption. It's the first time that God has made it concrete. Everything else was a hope. Everything up until Genesis 12 was, a, was God's going to do something, but we have no idea what, we have no idea how, we have no idea what's going to go on until Abram. And in Genesis 12, God says there's going to be hope. All nations are going to be blessed because of you and through you. Second thing that, that happens here is Jesus, that, that Matthew identifies Jesus as the anticipated Messiah by showing how Jesus' time of birth fits perfectly into a prophecy that was written hundreds of years before Jesus was born. And I'm going to get into that in a minute, and we're referring to Daniel chapter 9. Ultimately, this is God's most exciting day. For thousands of years, God has anticipated walking with his people. For thousands of years, God has said, I'm going to make it right. I'm going to live with them. I will be their God. They will be my people, and everything will be made right. And God's vision of walking with his people in person is realized in this day. Hope is rebirthed. See, the last time God had walked with his people was in Genesis chapter 3. The last time God was actually physically present, as recorded in the Bible, in person form, was back when God walked with Adam and Eve in the garden. There are times where, where God's presence is made known and manifest all throughout the Bible, and, and, and we see that God is continually getting closer, but walking with humanity? Now that's something special that hadn't happened for a very long time. See, Jesus' lineage is stacked. It's completely stacked. Like, okay, in fiction we tend to stack the hero's history. Well, you know, uh, if you've ever read the Potter series, then you know that Harry Potter's parents were special. And if you've read, you know, um, anything by Tolkien or anything in fantasy, you know that there are special people that are, that are put into, that are put into this, that, that I'll get into in a minute. But what we have here is Jesus' lineage is absolutely stacked. There's an expectation on the hero right from the start. And the backstory, when we read fiction, usually tries to prove to me that the hero's character is unassailable. You can't be defeated. The hero is going to be successful. Now, the challenging part of this is the prophecies of Jesus were clearly written before. They were clearly marked out before Jesus was born. It's not a matter of the way that, that 
culture puts it, that says, oh, well, you know, what you do is you just find something that happened and then you write a story that's supposedly historic. No, no, no. The stories about Jesus and the prophecy weren't just these off-to-the-side, maybe somewhat known-about ideas. They were central to the identity of an entire nation. The stories of the hope of the Messiah weren't just some backwater, oh, look, I found a prophecy from a few hundred years ago that nobody's ever seen before, but thank God, and we can make this fit here so that, oh, look, this is, this is something profound that's happened, and we muster up all of our courage. We muster up all of our literary devices, and we say, oh, look, something really happened here, and we prop it up with facades. Not the case in the story of Jesus. The story of Jesus is an expected resolve that has been culturally embedded. It's not possible to make this stuff up at this point. It either fits or it does not fit. See, Jesus wasn't the first Messiah. He wasn't the first person to be titled Christ. He was the only person to retain the title of Christ after his death. See, there was a hundred years before Jesus, there was a revolt from the Jewish nation, and they they stepped up, and and there there were these brothers, they called them the, the brothers of the hammer, the Maccabees. And everybody thought that these people were the Messiah, They were going to bring the eternal rule of God to bear over Israel and over the entire world because these people threw off the Babylonian Persian invaders. They created Israel again as a nation state, independent. They were truly the people who were setting up the kingdom of God. But then they died, the whole lot of them. And everybody was brought back to reality that said these people weren't the Messiah, they weren't the Christ. And Rome came in and overtook Israel, Judah again. And once again, they were subjugated people. So this idea of Messiah all of a sudden got thrown out the window because it didn't hold water. The celebration was without substance. So Matthew starts the narrative of Jesus proving his unassailability by listing his lineage. Okay, so I look back at my lineage, and I mean, it's cool. I have like an English-Irish thing going on. But as far back as I could find in my lineage, there's nobody that's really cool. I mean, I have the most, like, my lineage is like English cooking. Sorry. Um, I grew up with boiled potatoes. Just boiled. Sometimes we would boil meat. Gross. Don't do that. Thank God my wife can cook really, really well. <laughs> I'm so happy. Um, but, but seriously, my lineage has nothing significant in it. And yet God's able to use me. How much more can God use somebody with a lineage who has something significant. When I looked through these, these list of names that we referred to in the, in the text today, there are 26 names of people 
who have full-on stories embedded in Israel's history. There are 26 significant, direct ancestors that when I go back in the Bible, I'm like, oh, there's the story. Oh, oh, I see that here. It's not that the author has gone back and said, I'm going to write these backstories. It's, it's like we have, unlike fiction with, core, with concocted historic pedigree, Jesus' history is actual fact already written, already accepted, already built upon. It's just a fact. Prophecy is, is clearly written about Jesus well before he was ever born. And so the fulfillment of the real prophecy about Jesus creates awe and wonder of the consistency of God. One of the biggest reasons that people today, when I hear smart people talking to me about the way the Bible was written, and maybe you've heard this too, that, oh, well, you know, the Bible was conveniently put together hundreds of years later to make us all convinced that, you know, Jesus is the way and really it's all about behavioral modification. And these people come across as though they are the educated people. They're like, well, if you would do studies, then you would know that. No, actually, if you would study history, which is a subject that our culture actually despises, but if you would study history you would know that the prophecies defined a nation. You would know, actually, that the Jewish nation is the only nation culture to exist after being overthrown. Every other culture has assimilated into the culture of their overseers. Every culture in history has disbanded and, and dispersed except for the people of God, the Israelites, the Jewish people. They did not and have not disbanded. They stand according to this. This is not some folktale fiction that was created later on. This was definitive, foundational, and identity building for them. And all of that leads us to these 17 verses that say this proves God is at work. And Matthew starts right there. So, I mean, we talked about, you know, Tolkien. You know, when we think about elves in, in the Tolkien world, they're actually created, um, they have a backstory, they're created by, um, by, oh, shoot, I lost his name. It's, it's a two-letter word. It's er, I think. Ur created the elves who were these, these people who came into to Middle East, uh, into the Me Middle Eastern culture. And, and, you know, they've got these, this lineage that makes every elf more and more important and, and understood. And, and so you see that, that this is happening. And so when, Jin, when Jesus' lineage is stated here in this story, it's showing us that Jesus is significant. You know, when we look at those real examples, those 26 people, I'm not going to go through all of them, but we've got Tamar who fought to bring justice for her child. We've got the story of Rahab who was an outsider who believed, the power of, who believed in the power of God and put her trust in him. We've got the story of Jesse who forgot about his youngest, most insignificant son, David. 
who became the archetype of what a godly king over Israel is. We've got Rehoboam, the king who took Israel down by being absolutely ruthless. We've got King Hezekiah and King Judah who together led a revolt against the Assyrian occupiers of Israel. We've got Jesus' lineage is great. And so Jesus is born in this time at the right time. When all the prophecies had said it was going to happen, the time is now. So let me actually just give us why, why Matthew broke it down into three paragraphs. See, Matthew takes these 17 verses, and he actually separates them into 14, three sets of 14 generations. Well, why is that important? You know, he started with, the, with Abraham, the beginning of God's promise, and, and we see, we talked about how Abraham in Genesis 12 is, is the beginning of this, and, and, he's, and he walks Abraham into the promised land, and 14 generations later, we've got David being king. And you'll see that in verse 6. 14 generations later, David is king. 14 generations later, Israel is overcome by the Babylonians. Again, 14 generations. Why does this matter? We'll get to it in a second. And finally, 14 generations after the exile, Jesus is born. This matters because Daniel, 400 years before Jesus was born, stated that from the exile to the anointed one, there will be 70 weeks or 490 years, which is 14 generations before a Messiah is birthed. We have in Daniel chapter 9, verse 24, 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophet, to anoint a most holy place. Matthew knows what time it is. Matthew did the math. And he says, here it is. This is undisputable. It was written years and years ago. It is part of our national identity. It is a point where we stand on. We have a hope that we are going to be redeemed, that God has not abandoned us. And look at this. In Matthew 9, 24, I said this is God's most exciting day. It says, to finish the transgression and put an end to sin, atone for iniquity. When we say that the Messiah is born, when we say that the Messiah is God walking with us, we say that all of the iniquity of Israel, all of the sins of the world, God has forgiven. We understand it in the cross and resurrection, but it happens when God's presence comes back to God's people. Think about this. In all of the history of Israel, we see that when God's presence is there, it is equivalent to God's forgiveness and his approval. We see that when the Ark of the Covenant leads Israel into war, this is so awesome. It's so exciting because when the Ark of the Covenant is with them, it's God's presence with them. It's God's approval. It's God's victory. It's God doing something. When they leave the Ark behind, they are utterly destroyed and defeated. There is a direct correlation between God's presence and God's acceptance. And we saw it all through the minor prophets. 
we see that God is constantly saying, I want to be with you. The whole idea of the exile is that God is, is left. God has left Israel to their own devices. God has disapproved of their actions. And now we see that God himself has returned. This is the hope to bring in everlasting righteousness in Daniel 9 again, to seal both vision and prophet, to anoint a most holy place. God is going to do something, and Matthew knows that this is the time. The expected anointed one is due right now. In Matthew's Christmas, this is so exciting. So it is God's most exciting day. The three main promises God answers in Jesus is Jesus is the promised son of Abraham. The one whom the entire world will be blessed by. Jesus is God with us. Jesus is to the eternal king on David's throne. And my mic is keeping on falling off of me. Jesus, the eternal king on David's throne. And Jesus is the promised anointed one from Matthew 9. The time frames between the fulfillments of the promises paces with intentionality. All of this from 17 verses that we don't like to read. All of this coming down to say, here's the proof against the naysayers who say, oh, well, prophecy's written later and the whole Bible was put together for fun just to control the way people act. No. Defining a culture before Jesus' time and then fulfilling it. This is beautiful. And so the, it's at the moment that God answers the religious problem of divine separation. The gospel message of God coming to humans. It's God coming to us like God meets with us today. He meets with us graciously today. See, God created humanity for the purpose of living with us. And in all of this time, if we watch the story from God's perspective, God's been waiting and foreshadowing and proving his action again and again and again. It's be, by telegraphing his moves so that people can see it and understand it. In the birth of Jesus, God actually lives with his people, tangible, walking with, talking with, eating with. God has projected this. He's foreshadowed it. You know, as a church, our mission statement is to foreshadow the fulfillment of God's promises. It comes from this type of weight of substance. Because God is a God that foreshadows what he's going to do. In the book of Amos, it says, God doesn't do anything without first telling the prophets, without first foreshadowing it to people. When we foreshadow God's goodness and his promises, when we do that as a community, we succeed in continually telling the embedded story that God's not done with us. So I want to brag on a, on a promise group and there's a, there's a promise group that um, none of the members are here because most of them watch online. Um, 
every single week, and they, they have been meeting faithfully during COVID and encouraging each other with good words of support. If you're not in a promise group, get into a promise group. It's important. But they, uh, they took a, the time to move into doing a promise grant where they watched four videos talking about what they could do to, uh, to be guided into an idea of how they could serve a community and foreshadow the fact that God has not abandoned us to put substance, tangible substance, to the hope that we have. And so they came up with the idea that, that during this time, childcare workers have a lot of pressure on them. All of these extra regulations and all this stuff, there's a lot of pressure going on childcare workers. There's a lot of fear around the culture of, of COVID, and, and childcare workers bear a brunt of it, where they, you know, they have to hear the legitimate and illegitimate concerns of parents who are leaving their, tr- their loved ones with these people. And so this promise group that was, I believe it was led by, or actually I know it was led by John, uh, John Binder and Georgia uh, Binder, and they led this group through this idea of how do we help, how do we serve, how do we enlighten these people's lives? Because they're working in a high-stress situation, and they need to be thanked, and they need to be acknowledged, and they need to know. And so what they did is, is, they, is they got together with the owner of Fireside Subs, who somebody in the group knew, and they got together with the owner of Fireside Subs and said, hey, we want to do something for daycare workers in the area, and they were able to purchase subs from Fireside Subs, supporting a local business, and give those subs to daycare workers with a big note of thanks and gratitude for the work that they're doing and with an encouragement to them saying that they have not been forgotten. And so off they went, and, and apparently I wasn't there, I didn't get to be there, but it was delightful for them to be able to drop off lunch, and, and I think it was for like 18 childcare workers that they just went and bought lunch for just as a sign, a foreshadow moment that says, hey, God's not given up yet. God has not given up yet. And so we're so encouraged to be a part of that because God has foreshadowed his action and he continues to foreshadow his action in the church with us. When we get to be a part of it, it's so life-bringing. We have another grant that's, uh, that's going right now and we'll get to brag about that when it happens. And if you want to get involved in a grant, you can talk to Pastor Danielle about that and it will be wonderful to have you involved in. If you've lived your life thinking that you're reaching up to God, that somehow your actions are going to hopefully balance out your good actions against your bad actions, and hopefully they'll be good enough to gain God's approval, if that's the way you've lived your life, then the story that God showed up to atone for the transgressions and to bring in everlasting righteousness, according to Daniel 9. The hope is that it's not about this balance anymore. The hope is that you put your trust in Jesus Christ, and he carries you into the very presence of God, because he is God. He is the one who forgives. He is the one who makes contact with God possible. And Jesus is going to return for all of those who put their hope in him. It's not about a balance any longer. It's about God coming to us. Let me pray. God, Matthew 1, 1 to 17 has a lot of names in it. And now we see why. 
we see that it's rooted in a long story proving your faithfulness. And sometimes we as Christians don't really understand the depth of effort. We don't really appreciate, take time to value the careful communication that you have embedded into culture. That you, by your hand, have shown yourself faithful again and again and again. And today, it's that faithfulness that undergirds our reason that we can celebrate. Because it wasn't us who were faithful, but it's you. And so we step into Christmas this year celebrating because you did something that was awesome. We celebrate not because we're just nice people that want to celebrate gift-giving and nice feelings, but that all of the gift-giving and all of the feelings hinges on the fact that you are faithful. And so God, thank you for the reminder today that you are faithful, that you wrote all of this into culture, and that Matthew wrote it into 17 verses of names to prove your faithfulness. And so Jesus, today as we go, as we step into this week, God, I pray that our eyes would continually see the ways that you foreshadow your great work. And thank you so much that you come to us. Because I got exhausted trying to be good enough for you. But then you gave me power to come to you because you came to me. I got exhausted trying to prove that I was good enough by my list of actions. But then you said those aren't what work. You came to me. And so Jesus, for all of us who have exhausted ourselves trying to be good enough to meet some standard of the divine, that we would know that you came to us and then you empower us to be your people. Those ones that you talked about all throughout scripture, they will be my people and I will be their God. And so God, I pray that you would continue to empower us to be your people under your vision inside of your faithfulness. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for coming to Promise Church this week and we pray that you will be blessed this coming week and we'll see you next week. God bless.